Thank you, Richard. Uh, it's wonderful to be here um, in such a magnificent venue and also great to be able to celebrate with you the 500th anniversary of this remarkable event. And here is the man who posted the 95 theses. But as Richard said, we think he probably glued them. And so when we did a reenactment yesterday outside the history faculty in Oxford, we did indeed use a brush. <laughs> Someone said afterwards he had no idea that Luther was such a smiley person. So you learn something every day. But it is a very strange event to celebrate, one of those events which is imbued with myth. And one of the most obvious parts of the myth is, if you look down there, can you see how many theses there were? If you see there, how many? 87. And here we can see why the printer got mixed up and started renumbering. So one of the wonderful things about this event is that there are only three extant copies. One of them is numbered in batches of 20. One of them appears to have 87. And the third is a little booklet about so big, which you could never have pasted up or nailed up anywhere. And the reason that we think that he probably pasted them is think late October, think outside, think paper, nails, what's likely to happen. So anyway, that was our best guess yesterday. Also interesting, because the theses were sent to Albrecht of Mainz, um, and that was what set in train the whole uh, rem removing of the case to Rome in the beginning of the attempt to uh, convict Luther of heresy. And so one can argue that it was the posting rather than the pasting but what's also interesting is that if you look at histories of the Reformation done in images, and this one is from 1557, there we have the debate at Augsburg, followed by Leipzig, followed by the burning of the bull, and there we have the highlight of the story, Worms, where Luther refused to recant in front of the emperor and the assembled estates of the entire empire, an extraordinary act of courage. And he appeared, so it said, in a borrowed cassock and with his tonsure newly done but very badly shaved indeed. And uh, we, there we have the uh, interestingly similar depiction of the um, Diet at Augsburg where the Augsburg Confession was presented to the emperor in 1530 and Lutheranism really became a separate denomination running right through to Luther's death. And you've noticed what was not depicted, the posting or pasting of the 95 Theses. And indeed, that's not just an accident. These wonderful single-page depictions of Luther's whole life also don't show uh, the posting of the 95 Theses. What they do show is indulgences being sold, but they don't show that event. Um, and the same is true of this one. Also, it's not shown, but the sale of indulgences is. And even in this wonderful one, my favourite from Augsburg in the 18th century, and you can see what shape that would have been if you'd got the top roundel there. What would it have been? A cross. And it's wonderful because it folds up to about this big, and it goes in a little wooden box, so it looks for all the world like a communion wafer. There, um, sorry, we do have um, a rather gay-looking Luther posting his theses. But that is a very late, um, that's an 18th century object. And the first depiction of something like the posting of the 95 Theses is actually from 1617, where clearly you needed an image of what you were going to celebrate. But you can see there that Luther is using a rather outsized quill, um, and it's, <laughs> it's crashing through the ears of the Roman lion, Pope Leo. <laughs> And there he is. He's not 
um, posting up any theses, he's actually writing on the door, and it's not a depiction of reality, it's the depiction of a dream supposedly had by Luther's ruler, Frederick the Wise, on the eve of the posting of the 95 Theses. So it's absolutely not a depiction of a real historical event. So that's what we're celebrating. Many people have doubted whether it ever happened at all. For what it's worth, I think that it almost certainly did, just because Luther was someone who knew how to stage an event, who thought very carefully about who he was going to send his 95 theses to and picked on Albrecht of Mainz, his, uh, the most senior churchman uh, under whom he, uh, uh, he, under it, in whose jurisdiction he was. He clearly thought about and knew that it would be provocative in relation to the papacy and its style is certainly not that of academic theses. He was a remarkable man and a man who showed quite extraordinary courage and whose theology is still fascinating today. But what I want to do tonight is something rather different, if you'll permit me. I want to talk about one of the most disturbing sayings of Luther that I know, and it's something that I found hard to deal with when I was working on Luther that puzzled me very much and where I wanted to understand why um, it is as it is, and that is one of the more disturbing sayings of Luther, which is, living, I was your plague. Dead, I will be your death, O Pope. And there it is. And According to his personal doctor, Ratzeberger, Luther wrote these words in chalk on the wall the night before he died. He was in a good mood and he shared this remark with his friends and co-workers Justus Jonas and Michel Schirlius, who would also be with him when he died. And the bitter motto is repeated in funeral sermons for the reformer by Bugenhagen, his confessor and local parish priest. And there it forms the powerful conclusion given in Latin and then immediately translated. That is in German, Pope, Pope, while I lived, I was your pestilence. When I die, thus I will be your bitter death. And it can be found on countless memorial images of the reformer and it even stood outside the house in Eisleben where Luther was born. I think it looks rather like a pub sign. When the house was rebuilt after a fire burnt it to the ground in 1689, the image, with its imprecation, miraculously survived unscathed. Living I was your plague. This was neither a joke nor a chance remark. Ten years before, Back in 1537, Luther was suffering from urine retention at Schmalkalden and he was in the middle of very important negotiations. He was in great pain, swollen, and he'd experienced a euphoria caused by the infection and he realised just how ill he was. Convinced he was on his deathbed, he made the same remark, prefacing it with the words, my epitaph shall remain true. And 10 years before that, in 1527, when Luther had had a complete collapse and thought he was going to die, he'd said exactly the same thing. So Ratzeberger, Luther's doctor, is a notoriously unreliable witness, but I think that the story of Luther writing in chalk on the wall before he died certainly captured something that was going on in Luther's deathbed scene. Luther had gone to Eisleben, the town where he was born, because he was wanting to settle a dispute between the Counts of Mansfeld, and he knew that this might be his last journey. He was taken ill there, and as it became clear that he was dying, his followers recorded every prayer and his movements to and from the bed. It's a very moving account. And the night before he died, Luther shook hands with each of his companions. He wished them each good night 
and admonished them to pray for our Lord God and for his gospel, that it go well with him, because the Council of Trent and the wicked Pope are struggling hard against him. And I think that's interesting because even the official account of Luther's death records that one of his last prayers was an appeal to pray for God and his gospel because of the attacks they faced from the forthcoming Council of Trent and the wicked Pope. So true or not, Ratzeberger's legend was right about the deep emotional connection between Luther's dying and his hatred of the papacy. And the cover of that official memorial pamphlet, and there's the cover, and here is, here is the illustration, is Luther's face in a roundel with his, you can always recognise Luther because he's always got that little curl there and then this dimple on the chin and the deep set eyes. And uh, he wears the clerical un uniform of doctor's hat, academic gown and high shirt that he invented as the uniform for the clergy. And I think that the uncharacteristic gentleness of the expression conveys the sense that he's no longer with us and this is a mourning portrait. And yet right in the middle of what is a very um, uh, detailed and very... Um, it, it's, it's emotional, this account of his death. It's really quite moving. And yet at the middle of it, we read about Luther's curse against the papacy. And in the very same pamphlet, that whole funeral sermon is reproduced together with the verse known as Luther's motto. Luther's rage against the papacy was undimmed even at the end. And indeed, the motto doubles as a kind of prophecy and a curse. It linked Luther's death to the fulfilment of the destruction of the papacy, and it would become very closely linked with the memorial culture around Luther, which commemorated his death just as much as it did his life. So, for instance, it's on the tombstone um, of 1571 that was intended for Wittenberg, but ended up in Jena. The original wooden model for the tomb was made in Erfurt, and this also included the motto. And it can be found, if anybody knows Hamburg and St Peter's Church in Hamburg, there it is uh, on the image just there. Uh, and it's on the roundel relief. You can see it going around the border in the magnificent church in Halle and it was frequently copied. It decorated the copper gilt image of Luther in the Hildesheim town hall, and there was a similar one um, at Jena, and it appeared in many of the printed uh, versions too, sometimes added in as it is there. Um, and here, this is from um, the, uh, our own state archives. Here it is, um, right up the top, there. During Luther's life, it's even included in an autograph that, that shows a portrait done of Luther by one of his students. And um, there are other versions where it's added. And really strikingly, you can perhaps just make it out. Um, but in the background there, on this image of Luther on his deathbed, to my astonishment, I found the very same words. So the motto had a very long history and it went right back to the early 1520s when Luther first formulated his conviction that the Pope was the Antichrist. So it made me wonder, why was the cursing of the Pope such a central part of Lutheran identity? Why was it associated with his death and with memorial culture? I think they, these these statements work like a kind of gargoyle, as if they uh, ward off uh, the power of the devil and the Pope at precisely the same time as they very powerfully invoke the presence of Luther himself. And so what I want to look at tonight is that the theme of hostility to the papacy and the way in which it was woven into Lutheran devotional culture. And in a sense, this is not surprising because historians of the English Reformation have been showing for some time how important hatred of the Pope was to English religious culture in the 17th century, even arguing that 
anti-papalism was just about the only thing that the various sects uh, in, at that time could agree on. But I think it's perhaps less familiar for Lutheranism. Decades ago, Bob Scribner demonstrated how Reformation visual propaganda made huge capital out of hostile images of the Pope, plundering popular culture and images of the devil in doing so. And this evening, I'm building on his work. Luther was, of course, very aware of the power of images, and he was no iconoclast. I'm also going to argue that he was directly concerned in the making of some of the most problematic images, um, just as it was he who invented the motto, Pestis ero vivens, moriens ero mors tua, papa. And I do want to apologise because some of these images are offensive, so I apologise for that in advance. But what does this tradition come out of? I want to start with the very beginning of the Reformation and some of the first, in fact, the very first piece of visual propaganda for the Reformation, known as Karlstadt's Wagon, produced in early 1519. It's produced before there were even any images of Luther. And by a wonderful irony, this was made not by Luther, but by a man called Andreas Karlstadt, one of Luther's closest supporters, a man from whom he would later split and quarrel with uh, very bitterly, and the man who really is the progenitor of the Reformed tradition. He's saying many of the things that Zwingli is saying in Zurich and out of which Calvinism would eventually come. So by an extraordinary quirk of fate, it's Karlstadt who first does a piece of visual propaganda for the Reformation, and he employs the, or works with, the artist Lucas Carnach, who lived just around the corner. And if ever you want to start a Reformation, my advice to you is make sure you've got a leading architect, uh, artist like Carnach just around the corner. You can... Um, see that it's a beautifully executed large broadsheet. But would you say it was good propaganda? Absolutely not. The viewer can't immediately grasp the message. Um, and if you think that's got... There's Karlstadt, um, uh, who uh, is the person who, who worked on this together with Kranach and is responsible for all the words. And um, here's the Latin version... And you can see the problem isn't that German is wordier than Latin. The Latin is equally impossible uh, to make sense of. And the text utterly overwhelms the image. It ruins Cranach's finely observed landscapes. And it even cuts off God the Father's head. <laughs> the key message of the broadsheet is that you should leave one's own will behind and surrender yourself entirely to Christ. And that message is tucked into the top left-hand corner um, of the image. So can you see that it's that bit there that I'm showing you? So you'd, have, you'd be hard put to it to find that. And, but there it is. And the key message is this, written side on. And if anybody uh, can read German and can read uh, sideways you'll see that it says glass villa un dish, which sounds like it's saying glass will and you. But what it means is leave behind your um, own will and yourself and allow Christ to enter into you. It's the theology of what's known as Gelassenheit. <coughs> Karlstadt just hadn't left himself or Kranach hadn't left him enough space to cram in the words he wanted to include. And I think this is a someone who is deeply suspicious of the ambiguity of images and couldn't stand anything that didn't have a label. And no wonder Karlstadt's supporters in Nuremberg told him they couldn't understand it. So what does Karlstadt do? Well, I'm afraid, ever the intellectual, he writes a 50-page treatise explaining the image. But even with all the words, he only managed to explain the top row. <laughs> so you could argue that this was a brilliant experiment that went wrong. 
Kranach's workmanship is of a much higher quality than much of his later propaganda for the Reformation. I just love the way the bodies of the horses are rounded and how you can see the shadows of the stone, um, just like the stones that set off his wonderful Venuses. You see how they're similar? I don't know. I just am obsessed with stones. I they're, really, they're really wonderful. Um, and the movement of the horses is visually ambitious, and the image is also full of wonderful little figures, like this one here, who's trying to force the wheels of the cart apart. And uh, here's one. Can you see him lying down? He's greasing the wheels of the cart. Um, sorry. So the cartoon was produced in the lead-up to the Leipzig disputation, um, and that's the most public event of the Reformation to that point. Angered by Johannes Eck's refutation of Luther's 95 Theses, Karlstadt challenged the theologian Johannes Eck to a debate, devising a massive well-being. Karlstadt, there were 406 theses against um, Eck. You, you can sense a pattern here. This is a man who does not know when to stop. And at stake was the issue of the role of human will in salvation. Can man do any good work to merit grace? And that cartoon in German as well as Latin was the first work that Karlstadt had ever published in the vernacular. And it marked the Reformation's engagement with the public outside theology faculties. And so how it works is that we've got, four, we've got uh, figures here going towards the cross. That's the Christian um, here. Uh, sorry, that's St. Paul. Here we've got Augustine and they're heading towards the cross. And on the, there you can see them a bit better. There's the Christian there. And on the bottom row, we've got a group of figures riding towards, can you see what it is? It's the mouth of hell. And here, we've got someone who looks like they're a portrait. And that is labeled own will which is really a bit mean because it was, um, it's a depiction of Eck and it's making fun of his intellectual position, which is to argue that your own will is important in your gaining salvation, but it also implies that he's self-willed and selfish. So Karlstadt was very coy about admitting who this was meant to be, but Eck was absolutely furious and complained to Luther's ruler, the elector, Frederick the Wise, about the image. This figure here is less easy to identify, but Jenny Spinks and I, who've worked on this together, think that it's almost certainly uh, Leo X. And if it is, then the um, anti-papalism, which would become such a feature of later Reformation propaganda, would be there from the outset. So Karlstadt was really being quite canny when he only interpreted the top line of the image. There would be much more you could say about this image. Writing and pictures are at war in it. And by a wonderful irony, Karlstadt would be the first of the reformers to engage in iconoclasm and to reject the use of images altogether. He set about removing images from the Wittenberg churches. Um, as he put it, our eyes make love to images and court them. The truth is that all who honour images seek their help and worship them are whores and adulterers. And he writes also very movingly about how difficult he found it to smash images. He said, such a dreadful fear has been instilled in me of which I would gladly rid myself but cannot thus I am afraid to burn a single idol. So you might say the cartoon is the result of a collaboration between a theologian who never trusted images and couldn't stand their indeterminacy and their emotional power, and an artist who would never again let his work be ruined by a profusion of printed words. <laughs> but there is another way of looking at this image. Instead of viewing it as a failure, it could be seen as the precursor of the comic, 
where text and image are equal partners and one is not subordinated to the other. The image is, after all, a narrative. It's a story. And the viewer's line is meant to follow a slightly different um, pr procedure for text and image. Visually, you need to go that away and then that away. But if you're reading for devotional purposes, you're meant to go, as Karlstadt sets out in his description of it, you start there and then you gradually work your way around. It's a much more immersive kind of reasoning. So his way of viewing the text was circular and it didn't follow the line of procession. And this suggests that there are two modes of viewing which are intention in this image. One is linear, simple and propagandist. The good guys ride to the cross, the bad guys ride to hell. And like the visual clues, these little bits of text require repeated reading and some of them are in really awful rhymes. But those rhymes help the viewer to memorise and meditate on key religious truths. And what Karlstadt is trying to convey is the mystical experience of Gelassenheit, the idea that the Christian has to give up attachment to all earthly things, leaving aside his or her will, so that you make your will conform to that of the divine. And this experience just can't be conveyed in a picture. So what happens to Karlstadt is that he turns to writing theological tracts in language that became increasingly abstract and difficult to follow. But both modes of viewing, I'm going to argue, would persist in Reformation imagery, even though someone like Karlstadt could not cope with the contradictions um, they would set up. And now I want to move to one piece of propaganda which became enormously influential, done by Cranach, in 1521, just before Luther went to the Diet of Worms. It's a much, much more effective piece of propaganda. It's the Passionale of Christ and Antichrist. And I think you just have to look at it to see what Karlstadt has, uh, what Kranach has learnt from Karlstadt's Wagen. And one of the key things is You've got horizontal, uh, you don't have horizontal <coughs> contrasts. You've got vertical ones. And vertical ones are much easier for the eye to take in. And the, um, uh, on the left, how it works is you get a scene from Christ's passion. And on the right, you have what the equivalent thing is that the Pope is doing. And it's always a dreadful thing. Um, so just to show you a few. And here you can see um, uh, Christ on the left clearing the temple of moneylenders and on the right you've got the Pope uh, taking lots of money from the sale of indulgences. Good is contrasted with bad. The identities of the characters are unambiguous. The point is devastatingly simple. Um, so what I think is very interesting is what's happened to the words. They've gone right out of the picture space. They're carefully separated from it. And there are many fewer of them. The images themselves are artistically less ambitious. There's less playing with three-dimensionality. And the format, too, is more conventional. It's in the shape of a booklet, not a giant poster. So you might say, well, the Passionale creates the format that Reformation propaganda would follow with its simple powerful contrasts, good and evil. But in fact, many of the Wagens, many of that big posters techniques are carried over into Reformation propaganda. And I want to suggest that that is exactly what happens in this iconography, which was one that the Reformation developed and invented of law and the gospel. And it's a way of putting forward complex um, ideas. It's invented by the Kranach workshop and became used from the late 1520s on. And it mixes um, image and Kranach loves to paint print. I think this is wonderful, his fascination with that. That's painted, it's not printed, but it could be 
print. And he was someone who was fascinated by the idea of multiplying images, whether in print or in the production line of a workshop. And he even owned a printing press himself for a while. And as part of doing this, he creates a standardised iconography and that could, that could present complex doctrinal ideas in visual form. So mostly these are painted panels, and you can see they're the same, but just ever so slightly different. And there you can see how he's really going to town on imitating print. Uh, but they were also produced in woodcut form, and of course that ensures that they're very widely um, uh, accessible. Uh, here we've got another one, and this one is fascinating because it's done by Holbein. It's using the same iconography that the Cranach workshop uh, has developed. And uh, Luther's own theology also becomes increasingly set in words that are fixed um, and that are repeated uh, for clarity. So like Karl Staatswagen, these the images operate with powerful contrasts of good and evil. The Old Testament promise is aligned with obedience to the law, legalism and the dead letter. The gospel means grace and salvation. But you need to have both because unless you recognise your own sin, which you do through the law, you can't realise that you are sinful and then you can't set on the journey towards grace. So I think what's fascinating about these images is that they also require immersive non-linear, contemplative viewing. You have to move from one part of the iconography to another. You have to think about all the different bits and what they are telling you about salvation mentally and emotionally if you're going to grasp it. And the items out of which the picture uh, is made are very clear. And it's as if Kralach puts these images together out of a sort of self-assembly kit as indeed he does with many of his images, and you can move around the different bits just slightly um, to make each one different. So it works very much as an illustrated comic book, comic book, creating a story out of a series of narrative scenes. And now I want to move forward a bit. I want to move forward to 1545, when Luther was reaching the last years of his life. And how am I doing for time? I think, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> um, so, in 1545, Luther truly was dying um, and knew that he didn't have that much longer to live. Earlier that year, he had delightedly mocked a papist obituary. He was, he insisted, very much alive but he didn't have much time. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church was summoning a church council, the thing for which Luther had fought for so long. He'd wanted a church council to be called, but Luther was to be excluded from it. He was furious and he railed from the sidelines. Convinced that the council was yet another papist trick, he wrote the bitterest tract of all against the papacy, against the Roman papacy, a creature of the devil. In it, he defamed the Pope as a sodomite uh, and for good measure a hermaphrodite, a creature both man and woman, and denounced Pope Paul as the virgin Paul III. It is a strange text that reflects his state of mind as he recognised his own physical weakness and impending death. And early on in the treatise, he writes that my head is weak. And he says that he cannot write all that he wants to say before my strength departs from me. And screwing himself up for one final polemical assault, he writes of how papal decrees are all sealed with the devil's dirt, and that the Roman church is nothing but a devil's synagogue. He castigates the Pope as an ass. Um, that there is um, uh, the, the same, uh, that, 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 a, a close-up of that same depiction. 
So he castigates the Pope as an asphalt Pope who stinks like the devil. And he starts the treatise by saying it's going to cover three points, but it doesn't get much beyond the first as Luther gets, mired, uh, gets um, lost in the mire of his own invective. But what's also interesting is that the treatise contains a lot of reminiscence. He recalls that it's nearly 30 years since he first attacked the papacy. And he goes right back to the arguments that he first made in 1518 as he began to understand church history differently and argued that the existence of the Greek patriarch proved that the Pope had never been head of all Christendom. And part of what makes this such a, an aggressive and crazy treatise is what Luther thinks is at stake, and that is the existence of his church itself. Because Paul's summoning of the council and Luther's exclusion from that mark the final break with Rome and also means that Luther has to define what he means by the church. And to do that, he has to interpret Matthew 16. When Christ said, on this rock, I will build my church, Luther argues, Christ didn't mean Peter. And he certainly didn't mean his successors, the popes. Christ meant himself, that is, Christ. So in the tract, what Luther has to do is grapple with the issue of authority. He'd rejected the idea that the Pope or the church tradition should determine what scripture meant. Rather, Christ's word alone in scripture was self-evidently clear to the believer. But of course, what happens if someone else says they understand scripture differently? And it also left open the question of what structures the new church would have and what would happen to it once its charismatic founder, Luther, was dead. And the amazing thing about Luther is that he is only ever a professor of scripture. He doesn't have a formal um, position in the Lutheran church. He's not its bishop. He's not its superintendent. The enormity of these existential issues goes some way to explaining why this is such a foul-mouthed, ludicrously excessive tract. Because what Luther's doing is just throwing dirt at the papal church, trying to destroy it because he knows that his own existence and that of his church were on the line. And I think that's what he means by saying, living, I was your plague. Dead, I will be your death, O Pope. In fact, of course, Luther's death would not be the death of the Pope, quite the opposite. The Council of, Ch of Trent brought the beginning of the recovery of the Catholic Church and the start of its own Reformation, while the Lutheran Reformation, robbed of its leader, began to splinter between Lutheran loyalists and those who followed Melanchthon in taking a slightly more moderate line. So when Luther insists that his death is going to mean the Pope's death, he's engaging in a kind of magical thinking in which he's trying to join his followers together, unite them in trouncing the Pope and giving meaning to his own death as if his whole life was nothing but a long battle with the Pope. And at the same time that Luther wrote this treatise, he also commissioned what he termed his testament. This was a set of images that accompanied the text of the treatise. Now, however, text and image stood in a very different relationship because only that cover image is actually part of the text itself. All the other images you had to buy um, separately. And I think what's also interesting is that that motif is the same motif as the one that you've got back in Karlstadt's wagon. Um, it's the jaws of hell there, which is one, it's, a, it's something that's used in Reformation propaganda quite a lot. But I think it's kind of nice that at the end, here it is returning. 
But the, um, oh, I've put them there side by side so you can see the similarity. And uh, the visual debt, I think, that the image owes to this on the Passionale. See those wonderful devils there dragging the Pope down to hell? They're really fabulous. Um, and I think you can see, again, a lot of play with devils in this 1545 image. So I think that visually, too, this set of images is playing with Luther's own um, or the Lutheran Church's own tradition of imagery, which has now been going for a generation. So apart from that cover image, however, the other images were sold separately and were not part of the treatise itself. And one shows the Pope's tongue nailed to the gallows, a precise reference to Luther's text. Another is quite clearly the asphalt Pope, there's the Pope riding a sow. Uh, we have German mercenaries farting at the Pope and mercenaries defecating in the papal tiara that sits on top of the papal arms. There's even one hoary old Reformation image, the papal ass, which was first used as propaganda in the 1520s. It was one of the Reformation's early successes. So their use here suggests that as Luther's life nears its end, it, he's pondering his own history, the visuals are pondering the movement's own history, um, just as, as the text does too. So in this sense as well, we can see the images as being Luther's testament, as he called them. And they would go on to enjoy a long life, these images. Um, I've shown you later versions of them, they sold in 17th century, late 16th century, um, uh, and right into, right into the early 17th. Um, their imagery of hatred is unaltered. Uh, just the borders get more and more elegant. And also, part of the images associated with this treatise is a double set of images which I particularly want to focus on this evening. They're a bit different from the rest. They're of higher artistic quality, I'd say. They're designed as a pair and they didn't form part of that series I showed you, though they're perhaps even more closely connected with Luther's text against the papacy. We know that Luther knew of these images in their design stage and they called Cranach a shameless painter because he included this image of the Pope. He said that he could have um, spared the female sex for the sake of the creature of God and for the sake of our mothers. And usually it's been thought that what was meant, or that what Luther meant, is that he found the picture's explicit nudity shocking and believed that women would be offended. But that just didn't seem right to me. Luther is not the kind of person to be worried about chivalry or female sensibility. And not only that, I mean, if you look at that image, it's just full of all kinds of um, nudity. And that one's even worse. So why would he worry about this particular bit? I want to suggest that Luther, who wasn't a prude, um, was... Um, was thinking about something else because if we blow that image up we can see that the Pope has a prominent female sexual organ. What Luther meant therefore wasn't that Cranach was a lewd painter but that the Pope's genital was an insult to the female sex which is exactly the point that he's making in against the Roman papacy. And this daisy chain here doesn't hide anything, it just draws your eye towards it. The first image shows the birth of the monks. A female devil sits on a gallow and defecates monks. They fall upside down to the ground, their genitals exposed. This is a world turned upside down. 
And in the background, you can see the Pope's citadel, Castel Sant'Angelo, crudely depicted in just the way it always had been on Lutheran images, allying the monks with the power of Rome. The gallows were, of course, the most dishonourable place imaginable. Um, and, oh, I wonder what's happened there. Um, that's a bit odd. Um, I think we have a problem in that the whole thing doesn't appear to have been saved. Um, but I can still work with the images I have. Um, what's interesting is the way that um, hmm, the way that there are all kinds of phantasmagoric devils here, um, and in this one, you can see there they are on top of the gallows, and the devils are fully realised figures with these wonderful coxcombs on the top. The message is clear as the German text, which is set apart from the image, proclaims where the monks come from. I think there's a lot of visual inventiveness here too. The way that everything is shown at, at different angles and you see um, the monks' tonsures there, their feet at different angles. This foot coming out of the visual space I think is great fun uh, too. The matching image on the origin of the Antichrist shows the same monk figure, again upside down um, and very revealing, and devils with similar horns and claws. So if the message of the first one is that monks are the offspring of the devil and under the sway of Rome, this one shows the Pope to be a hideous female, breathed into um, by two Devils. Can you just make that out there? They're breathing into him. And the right-hand side of the image is particularly interesting because what we've got going on here is an inversion of a popular Reformation image, which is the idea of Christ in the wine press, the idea that you put Christ in a wine press, you squish him, and out of that comes communion uh, wine, which is Christ's blood. And this is a kind of version of that, except that uh, we won't go into what that liquid is that's coming out of those very terrified monks. But here we've got a giant pestle and mortar, and that's going to be used to squish those monks in there. So the devil is manufacturing the juice of the Antichrist damnation. And what's interesting in this one is that now we see many more of the faces of the monks. And I wish I could blow this up for you, um, but uh, I can't. Can you just make out um, these heads here? And they're all, some of them are going in different directions. But it's this one here that particularly interests me. Can you see also that they've got very exaggerated noses? Can you make that out? Um, and in this period, the nose is often equated with the penis. So it's, it's a way of saying these are really lascivious monks. Um, and this one with the hat, I think, is very interesting. And my suspicion is that it's a, um, a Jewish hat and that this person is meant to be a rabbi. Um, you probably don't believe me, but if I blow that up, you might be persuaded. Also, if I show you depictions of rabbis from this period and of Jews where they clearly wear hats like this in the images that come from Wittenberg. So Luther's testament, as he called it, marked his final unrelenting conviction that the Pope is the Antichrist and his henchmen, the monks, the devil's spawn. So as such, it fits entirely with the sentiments of the curse, living, I was your plague, dead, I will be your death, O Pope. But it's also not entirely seriously intended, and I think that we need to look at these images through the eyes of contemporaries, for many of whom this would have been funny. 
the image is bursting with visual jokes. And if you look there, and you'll have to take my word for it, but can you see that that devil and, his, and that his trunk is actually a face? Can you make up that face? Yeah, I think it's a visual joke. Just like the foot that comes outside the gallows is another um, uh, joke. The devils with their coxcombs, assorted breasts and wings are comic creations. After all, Luther didn't literally believe that monks were produced by monstrous diabolic defecation, nor did he truly believe that Pope Paul III truly was a hermaphrodite. What he's doing is using aggressive laughter to deflate the holiness of the Pope, slinging mud at him and mobilising the energy of play. The artist is equally at home in this activity, piling on the visual jokes and mocking the clergy by showing them from every conceivable immodest angle. The sense of space, flight, disorder and falling, mirroring the upside-down world the text itself conveys. But we followed a very interesting journey here in, these, in this rapid tour through Lutheran visual imagery. Because now, text and image, which we saw before as all mixed up together, have gone their separate ways. Now, they even had to be purchased separately. And I think this, BB, can you make it out? There's a BB on that, um, that barrel sort of mortar thing. And it's an interesting touch because, as it happens, the Wittenberg edition of Luther's text against the Roman papacy, A Creature of the Devil, runs to folio, big A, little a, three, verso. The next sheet, therefore, would have been BB. So perhaps this is one final visual joke. Luther liked to say, I am the Pope's louse. I bite him and... I live off him. And this was perhaps truer than he knew. Much of the Reformation's energy and invention came from its relentless corporeality and its zesty anti-papalism. But, as I think you'll agree, that can be mixed in with really quite a vicious anti-Semitism, if I'm right about that head. And... Its zesty anti-papalism wasn't just a joke, as the centuries of religious conflict that would follow certainly showed. Thank you. <laughs>